0: Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Yeh and
1: Mayu. What's going on, everybody? We're finally getting this podcast back on schedule, I think. Let's <laughs> not curse it too much, but also, oh, no, what are to, man?
0: you got to be confident with it. You got to say it with <laughs> confidence so that we start doing it. <laughs> what are you um, up to, man? Yeah. Things are, things are going well. Um, as we were talking a bit offline, I've just been taking a look still, uh, on other business opportunities, other business ideas, still looking to acquire real estate, but I don't think I'm in any particular rush just yet. Did you guys know Austin had a vending machine business? (laughs) Oh, it's it's not really a business, but there, yeah. There's two two vending machines. Yeah. I I partnered with that? Yeah. When was that? This was, uh, Back when I had, I want to say two or three properties and I partnered with someone who had a vending machine business already, like a couple of routes in different places. And sure. they let me essentially, it was like JVing, but not really. They let yeah. me keep hundred percent of it and a hundred percent of the profits and they sold it below market value. But in exchange, it was for real estate knowledge and assistance along the way. Right. <laughs>
1: That's a barter system. <laughs> it was
0: a barter system, exactly. Yeah. But it was a pretty sick location. It was at, um, it was near Union Station at one of the corporate offices. Shut I don't remember which up. company. Yeah. And it was about, I want to say eight, I don't remember exact price, eight or 900 bucks each. Right. But one of the difficulties is, is that you have to find someone that you really trust to go to the roots and fill up the chips, chocolates, drinks and collect the money. Right. Okay. And if there's anything wrong with the machines, with some of these older non-credit card tap machines, there are some things wrong with it. Right. You have to send a maintenance person over to fix it. And I mean the returns aren't fantastic. Actually, the returns are decent, but it's a lot of manual work because it's it's hard to hire out unless you really trust someone to take that money out for
1: you. Right, you gotta you have, have scale. Gonna steal from you probably me. have to have, You gotta probably have some decent scale behind it. So what did you do? You 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 went around during your lunch break and refilled these two two machines.
0: Yeah, I did it with him for a couple of times. Like he was showing me how to go about it, and I asked him. I was like picking his brain on how he has everything set up, and he was getting his parents or like one of his relatives that he's really close with to do it. And I was like, okay, like that's probably not very repeatable for me mm. and um i don't know i didn't really trust anyone to uh, i didn't trust anyone because <laughs> it's all cash so you don't know who is going to be stealing from you or who's not going to be yeah. so i just decided to abandon it because i would also have to grow up very aggressively to make yeah. any meaningful sort of cash flow because the cash flow isn't great it's probably about 25 50 bucks a month Cause you oh, have to shit. do cost of goods. You have to pay yeah. for gas when you drive. You got to go pick up the food and it's, it's a yeah. lot, right? Mm. Unless you have like a storage. Unless you scale. Unless you scale yeah. fast. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And even then when you scale fast, like there's a lot of problems that you have, like the labor problem is the hardest part, like, that, you have, like, the the hardest part that you have to yeah. solve. For. And I just, for me, what'd you do a with game. it? You like, gave it back to the
2: guy?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just gave it back and then he gave me the refund on it. <laughs> but he ended up getting a property so that was cool. Like he, he ended up benefiting from it. I benefited from it too. Cause I realized that it was a little downside, right? Like I basically just sold it back.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I made away with my money. Um, And that was that, but yeah, no, I'm not looking to get into businesses like that more. So like something that's more easily scalable on the online space would be ideal. Doesn't necessarily have to be though. But yeah, that's kind yeah, of what you I'm gonna, looking at. You're
1: going to join hustlers Academy or what?
0: you going what? Who who's Academy? Hustlers Academy. Hustlers Academy. Isn't that guy done? I, I swear that website got pulled down. Oh yeah. I think it did. So yeah, yeah. we should have him on our podcast. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'll ever want to jump on anyways. Um, but yeah, that's everything going on in mind. I've been looking at Airbnb arbitrage. There's, I know I'm rambling, but one last thing I wanted to point out, at least the market I'm looking at at the moment. And you were looking at this too, Maya, you like the amount of, listings have gone up exponentially. I want to say in one month, it's probably increased. It looks like by a hundred or 200 listings. And prior to that, it'd go up by like maybe two, three, four, five a month maximum. Damn. So it's been increasing exponentially. And we noticed that occupancy rates across all percentiles have been decreasing and average daily rates across all percentiles, at least for the last three or four months, when the boom of listings came up, have been decreasing as well. So I don't know if this is going to be a trend, because uh, it's only been a couple of months. But um, obviously, for me, that's kind of there. There's a lot of uncertainty there to enter the space. Seeing that, right? At least for this particular market.
1: Yeah, it's fair. I'm. Um, um, I don't know if I told you this before, but I was looking at doing a a JV deal where I was just going to be the capital partner with another wholesaler, and then he like that wholesaler just went, "Hey, I just want. I'd rather just sell it." And he already had an offer at that time. So I was like, all right, cool. Whatever you sell. It's that guy that guy was willing to pay way more. And then it, it kind of fell off. I guess something happened with that potential buyer. And so then I just went, Hey man, like, would you just sell it to me? And, and then he's like, yeah, like I'll sell it to you. So then I have an offer out and I think it'll be accepted today. And now I'm the, I'm the active partner and I brought in a capital partner. It's kind of weird how I switched that up, but that's going to go on Airbnb. But the entire conversation with the capital partner was, Hey man, like, like, This is now like cottage country, like ARV is like this huge fucking range, right? One one end we like leave a net investment of like forty thousand. The other end we have like positive like return beyond like what we put into it of fifty thousand. I'm like, but there's no like perfect comp for this shit. Because like every single house is like completely different lots, completely different finishes, completely different sizes. So I don't know. So we'll see what happens with that. And I ultimately just told him we're also gonna be in the short-term rental market, which in a recession is gonna be it's discretionary, right? It's not long-term rentals where people need housing. This is now disposable income, right? So we're potentially going into recessionary times, but I was like, you know what? We have enough buffer that like, it's okay. Even if we don't make like real cash flow for a little bit, like we pull out our capital and we just kind of keep a good reserve. So we'll see that one should get accepted, I think later today. And then, um, yeah, I've also got another, the the offer from last week. What what was the
0: assignment fee on that? If you don't mind me asking, just out of curiosity. I'll, I'll disclose next week because
2: I if, I want to decide if it ends up going through. Yeah, 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 fair, yeah, enough, yeah. fair enough. Fair
1: enough. Um, and then the offer from last week, I think I'll know as of Monday if I get that or not because it was uh, a seven day irrevocable period. And then that was the one that my mortgage client actually called me about yesterday, and he was just like, "Yo, my, you like I'm looking at this property, like blah blah." blah. And we were just like talking about random shit. I'm like, "Yo, this thing sounds very like like what are the chances that like we're actually talking about the same property?" I'm like it was like this this address and he's like yeah and i'm like fuck like i didn't know about it but what's fucked is my mortgage client was trying to get bank financing on it and as soon as he told me the address i was like nah man like it's not gonna happen there's like so much shit wrong with the house and like one of the yeah. units aren't even livable and like it's a really fucked up house so we'll see if both of us are still competing against each other on monday i'm gonna Mm-hmm. I'm gonna give him a side call. We're <laughs> gonna sort this out because I'm not trying to bit each other up. <laughs> yeah, you gotta just let him
0: know. Like that's at least that's the the benefit of him uh, working with you. I know like he's competing against you, but I mean, <laughs> you also told them, hey, if the plan is a lender, don't even bid on this property. Yeah, You're yeah. Like,
1: hey, say, it's one of those properties because like no one ever thinks about this, but when something has like like one of the units in the back is really fucked up, right? Um, three units, so. Uh, technically one is not livable and like, you might still be fine with that, but then there's also like significant like water damage, which right now, if you walk through the house, there's no water damage because it's been dry for like the last like one or two weeks. Right. But they're like, the listing says water damage. So it's like, okay, maybe we can get that removed Oh from yeah, it. The bank is going to see that and they might yeah. be like, uh, uh-uh. uh. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you get it removed and then maybe you get an appraiser that goes into the house. And then if that, if it rained that like week, right. Then it's going to be, and it's like so obvious that there was water damage, it's, like ridiculous. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. We'll see what happens with that. But that's, uh, those are two things that I'm working on, on my end. And obviously the mortgage business, um, it's interesting. Every time there's, there's an interest rate hike, we do a kind of an influx of business and then we kind of chill out the week after, but. People seem to be looking to refinance. People seem to be looking to buy properties. Been having a lot of calls with uh, first-time homebuyers that are just asking me, like, okay, hey, like, is that a good time? And ultimately, I just tell them, yo, honestly, if you've got a five-year timeline, like, yeah, you're fine. But if you need to pull out your capital in like three to six months, you might be kind of fucked, like buying something on the market, right? So
0: yeah, yeah, that's all on my end. Now that we give in our updates, I think it's the right time to jump into the podcast. Today, we have Russell Westcott, who some of you guys might've heard of already. He's the Joint Venture Jedi an OG in the real estate game. He was absolutely crushing it, or still absolutely crushing it too. But when he got started off, he was buying a property a month. So scaling aggressively, but he also goes into the trials and tribulations of scaling that aggressively. He goes into how to raise capital from JV partners and how to scale a JV business, which is something we don't get into too much, the business side of things. So this is a very interesting episode. If you guys are even thinking about raising capital, you cannot miss this out. Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest, the JV Jedi himself, Russell Westcott. Russell, how's everything
2: going? Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, it is a pleasure and an honor to serve and a pleasure to see (laughs) you. Right. But, uh, I've been a, I've been a fan fun. I've been a fan from afar and you guys are just crushing it and you guys are just making a huge impact in the marketplace, both on the support plus also building the the portfolio. Hundred podcast episodes coming up right away, top thirty in Canada. Holy moly, I, I, I should be sitting there going with I should be your guys' hype machine with you. <laughs> It's coming from the heart. You guys are doing an amazing job. This is coming from somebody with 22 years experience in the marketplace. I've seen an awful lot of flash in the pans and you guys got the chops to make it long term. So congratulations.
0: Oh, thank you so much. We must be doing something right if we're getting this compliment from you. We should just let Russell
1: do our intros now on. There There you go. go.
2: Just clip that little segment (laughs) out and say, Russell Westcott says.
1: (laughs) Uh, Awesome. For any of our listeners that might not know you, Russell, um, why don't you give everyone a quick background on yourself? Love to hear how you got started in the real estate space and just what you're up to today.
2: Well, obviously, if you're watching the video, you can tell that I'm, I'm, I'm tall and, and a dark complexion and a full head of hair. And, and I've got every silver spoon ever <laughs> given to me in this world. And, and I'm, I'm a trust fund baby and I, I should be going into Canadian politics or something. So that's uh, a wrap. We'll just yeah.
1: stop the podcast there. <laughs> right there.
2: But the reality is, is, uh, you know what? I, I'm just, um, I'm a simple guy from small town Saskatchewan originally. I live out on the coast of British Columbia right now. I live in a suburb of Vancouver. It's no different. The market out here is very similar to the market that you guys are in as well. I made a decision a while ago to invest my capital outside of this market because it just didn't make sense to me. I'm a, an author. I'm a podcaster. I'm a YouTuber. And if you ask my wife, I'm a hell of a good guy.
1: <laughs> you wrote the book on real estate joint ventures, right?
2: Yeah, that and uh, I co-authored a book called 97 Tips for Canadian Real Estate Investors," and I also co-authored the book on raising capital through joint venture partnerships as well.
0: Well, I wonder what we're going to talk about today. <laughs>
2: well, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about hockey. We're going to talk about the weather, and we're going to talk about uh, about politics. Is that what, <laughs> there you go? <laughs> no, we're not going to talk about interest rates, and we're not going to talk about building a portfolio. We're not going to talk any of those things, right? Mm-mm. For sure. Not important. So
1: Russell, how'd you get started in this space? Like what brought you into the real estate space? Um, did you grow up like always in it, like fascinated by it or anything or, or what really got you started off in it?
2: Well, here's the thing. I'm going to tell you a very fairly cliche story that probably 95% of the people on your podcast have probably told a very similar story. However, mine's a little different. There is a little book out there that I would bet 90% of your guests and people listening to this probably read this book a while ago, it's purple in color and it's black and it's got a, a rich something poor something in it. And my story started uh, right around the turn of the century. So it's a funny way of saying, hang on a second here, by the way.
0: Oh. <laughs> oh,
2: I, I come with my own sound effects, by the way. <laughs> so it, I really started, it was right around the year 2000. I had one of those midlife crises. Um, I had one of those birthdays that ended with a zero in it and um i turned 30 in the year 2000 and i had a good job i had you know it was all the makings of a successful career I had a fast car had an svt cobra convertible you know flying down the road wind flipping through my fingertips you know <laughs> but here's the thing is i was maybe going fast but the ladder was leaned up against the wrong wall and at that time i was renting a basement suite with a roommate and i was feeling a little disillusioned at age 30 that i just really hadn't made much of myself up to that time and where does any young man go in their 30s to get advice from the sage wisdom of oprah so i watched an episode of oprah and robert kiyosaki was on that program and he talked about this thing called uh, passive income the cash flow quadrants rich dad poor dad read that book devoured it played the games went to the meetings went to the conferences And slowly, once I made the decision, I was going to get into real estate, which resonated for me. Now, remember, I also grew up in a trailer park where I grew up in small town, Saskatchewan. I was renting a basement suite. I had never bought a property in my life. I had no rights to get into real estate, but something just really clicked for me with real estate. I dove in with both feet. There was a time of year for like five years. I was buying a property a month for five years plus, you know fast forward now, you know, 20 some odd years later, I've authored books. I've helped coach people. I inspire others. I keep building my portfolio. I'm in a process now of starting to pay off some of those properties and snowballing them off. And the main thing I'm doing right now on top of the portfolio I'm building, because I see there's an incredible opportunity ahead for us right now, is I'm pouring into others. I'm pouring into my 30-year-old self that I was way back in 2000. So I'm pouring all my time and energy and wisdom into helping others. And that's how I get my significance. If I build a large portfolio or I close another deal or my Facebook post, look at me, look at me, I just bought another 275 units and stuff like that. My significance I get is by helping my clients bust through limitations and helping them move forward. So that's kind of a, a long way, I guess, of saying, um of what I'm doing and what I'm all about. And we can go any direction from here if you like.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. A property a month is uh, no small fee. It seems like it went full circle. So you started off young and hungry, grew your portfolio. You're at the point in life where adding numbers doesn't matter anymore. So now you're, you're. If correct me if I'm wrong, you're the money partner in, in some of your deals that you're buying new properties for, right?
2: Yes and no, in two respects. So I am gonna f- reframe this. I'm not correcting you, I'm actually enhancing what you said. I know it sounds really, it sounds really cool. A property a month for five years. Doesn't that sound really cool? Um, (laughs) yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) If if we were sitting over a beer right now, I would tell you that was the stupidest thing I could have ever done. I grew way too fast. I grew way too quick. I bought a whole bunch of garbage properties and garbage areas that were marginal at best. And I was doing it based upon ego to just stand up in front of people and brag and say, i look at all the action I'm taking. Mm -hmm. So it was the wrong intention right from the beginning. It was the stupidest thing. I'm still paying for some of those properties today of that. Okay. Now what I'm doing now is in some cases I am contributing capital, but what I'm actually doing is I'm contributing my Rolodex. I'm contributing my connections. I'm contributing my ability to get onto a podcast, onto a YouTube To have a global reach to reach a a global audience of people and i'm attracting investors to bring in to bring to good operators of projects and then i get a piece of the pie from there you know it's just another way of saying it's a business within the business if you learn Mm -hmm. how to raise capital you can learn to raise it from other people to then place it with good operators and then you take a piece of the pie and have an ownership position there
1: yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious. I know you said your early stages and maybe your growth was not the best rate of growth to be sustainable or something like that as well, right? But I think myself and Austin are privileged in right now. Everyone loves real estate. It's kind of the sexy word on the street, right? You can raise capital a little bit easier. Capital's everywhere right now, right? So it wasn't the same challenge, right? For sure. And I'm curious, you know, how you went about raising capital back then because I think a lot of like history is the best indicator, right? And it's the best lesson. And I think a lot of the same systems that you did back then are a lot of systems that people can do now and should be doing now, even though we have social media.
2: I believe it's actually coming back more so to the personal connection again. The day, In my personal opinion, the days of just never, ever seeing the person you're going to be investing with is dangerous and over. You need to have a personal connection with that person. You need to be able to go and break bread. You need to have, I'll give you an example. One of my joint venture partners, and this was pre social media world. Uh, we met literally for like a year every Sunday we'd meet and talk and go through things to the point where my wife and I earned a picture on the family wall. You know, when you go into everybody's house, they have a family wall, like the kids and stuff like that. Korean and I earned a picture on the family wall. Right. What an and achievement. I, yeah, exactly. So I think we're gonna get back to that mm-hmm. thing again. And quick side story. Here, I was just at a networking event this past weekend and I'm very um, introverted. This is difficult. This is something I have to really prep myself and get up for. I'm not a very extroverted person to be able to do this. Now, some people say, saying, Russ, I don't believe you. You've done 1,200 public stage presentations. You've presented in front of 1,500 plus people. But trust me when I say it, I'm extremely introverted. So the story was, I was at this networking event this past weekend and I was so awkward. I like an introvert. Having two years of non-practice of of networking with real life human beings, I'm standing there in this room and I'm going, oh, I had to force myself to put on the networking cape to go out and talk to people because I felt so awkward and just so out of practice that I just, it was just one of those things I just need to exercise those muscles again. And I think that's going to happen across this country as we start getting out in real life again meeting people again it's going to be those people that have the real life human connection and the relationship that will prosper going forward
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's so true me and Austin talk about it quite a bit where we go to networking events and every time before you walk in that door you're probably like five minutes away from the networking place and you're like Ah, shit. Like, why am I going here? Do I really have to go here? I really don't want to do this. Right. And then you go in and like an hour into your conversation, you're like, ah, oh, this is pretty dope. Right. But it's kind of that lead up into it. Right. So I guess early on, a lot of your JV partners were personal connections and individuals that you knew within your existing network. And I guess how have you seen things change? Cause you coach a lot of people on raising capital, which I think a lot of our guests are very into as well and curious about as well. And I know we briefly touched on this, but how do you see the raising capital, the, the world, how has it changed recently since you did it and so on?
2: Well, here's the thing is the platforms have maybe have shifted the mechanics are very similar. Okay. Or or maybe another way of saying is the fundamentals are the same. The fundamentals are that you develop yourself. You develop an amazing person. You show up with a lot of passion, enthusiasm. You show up with a lot of energy. You show up as an expert in something and you do big shit, right? You take action. You don't just talk about it. You actually do it. Okay. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting there saying that you have to buy hundreds of properties off that. You could just sit there and go to all the conferences, meet all the people, connect with it, do your own podcast, learn this stuff, right? That, that's doing epic stuff, epic shit. Okay, so you, you do it, and then you document the journey, and you tell others about the path you're on, the journey you're taking, the connections you're making, the things you're learning, and most importantly, out of all of those things, is you become a solution provider to help others prosper alongside you, okay? You're taking the time to develop a skill set. You're taking the time to connect with the right people, and you're being a solution provider to people that are not taking those actions. Now, I'll give you a real life example, and I'll go back to an early story. Early story, one of my original first joint venture partners, and I'll give you the context. Remember, basement suite renter, never bought a property in my life. And I'm here to talk to a guy that only bought three properties in his life. We worked together. We did a lot of hiking together. And during those long four-hour hikes, we would sit there and we'd have lots of life conversations. And I was just kept telling him about, I was flying off to Edmonton. I met with this person. I met with this team member. I met with this mortgage broker. I'm analyzing properties. I analyzed this one, this one, this one, this one. I hadn't bought anything yet. And I never portrayed that I did. And I just kept sharing with them all the stuff I was doing and the properties I'm doing. And holy moly, look at this, look at this fundamental, look at this stat, look at this information. And I just kept sharing it with this person just on our long hikes. Eventually, after a a season or two of of hikes, eventually said, Russ, why don't we just partner up and do a deal together? And I just said, awesome. And later, after the fact, I asked him the question, I go, you do know I've never transacted the property. Why did you want to agree to invest with me? And he goes, he goes, Russ, I invested with you because of the energy you brought to the table. I invested with you that you were willing to do the work. I invested with you that you were willing to do whatever it takes ethically and legally to make this work and not have it as a loser property. I invested in you. And that's what he said. And everybody who's listening to this and everybody who's watching this can do exactly what I just said. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, Even if you look at Shark Tank, for example, um, Kevin O'Leary and all of the other sharks always say, look, the business idea, whether it's good or bad, oh, well, not if it's bad, but even if it's an average business idea, they invest in the entrepreneur, right? The energy, the passion, dedication they have to their craft. So kind of expanding on that. So one of the things that you mentioned was to document your journey along the way. And that's definitely how I got started as well. I've noticed that a lot of investors are doing the same. So now it appears, at least from the outside in, kind of a crowded marketplace of everyone wanting to raise capital, everyone documenting their journey, everyone posting the similar or same sort of content. How do you stand out in this current market environment uh, when trying to raise capital and promote yourself?
2: Yeah, great great question. So a couple things is, number one, your journey, or actually there might be three things I'm going to talk about. Number one is your journey is your journey and nobody else is on the same journey. So there is nobody else doing the same journey as you're on. So you are completely unique in your journey of what you share. Okay. Number two is it comes down to what I believe is the intention that you have behind it. Okay. The intention you have behind it is some people are sitting there with the intention of sharing their journey with the thing of just doing it on a not an underhanded way, but not on a genuine, authentic way to raise money from other people, right? And some people are actually doing the sharing of their journey and they've only maybe done one or two properties. And now they're starting to pontificate and they're starting to teach people and they're starting to go, you know, I've done a flip and now I know everything about it. I'm hosting my own meetups and I'm going to teach everybody about what I know about flipping. And, and geez, you've done one, right? Or two. That's that's number two. Number three of what I teach people to do and what I share with people is document your journey from a standpoint of the good the bad the ugly the authentic what you're learning what actions you're taking for you to do that epic shit okay what actions you're taking and on how you're connecting the dots not that you're teaching everybody or pontificating you're just sharing what you've learned what's worked for you the landmines you've stepped on the dog poo that you you know you stepped on at the same time the mistakes that you've made, and then just authentically share with the intention to inspire others with no gain whatsoever.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like the last one is really providing value with no real ask. Right. And the first one it's on, or maybe it was the second one there, but it sounded like the first two were really just documenting your journey, sharing what you know. And, and I guess just trying to like, you're, you're, you ultimately think be personable, right? Be approachable. Yeah. Something that you touched on earlier, which was just the concept of doing epic shit, right? Which really just means it is whatever is epic for you, right? And I think a lot of people struggle with not having content to share on social media, which you won't have if you're not doing anything, right? Because I tell some people that I talked to as well, like if you're at a networking event, you're here to share it, right?
2: Yeah, and the simplest is... um. To share conversations you had. Like I honestly, we could take an entire podcast of just this week alone, and we're only recording this on a Tuesday, <laughs> of the conversations I've had with people about how I've helped people get unstuck with just different things. we can just have conversations about that, just sharing how you've helped others, sharing things that you've learned yourself, and just sharing the things you're thinking about at the same time. I'm I'm not asking for any capital from anybody, I'm sharing knowledge, mm-hmm. I'm sharing information, and I'm sharing inspiration.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes wow. a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> a lot of people get it with the intention of obviously raising capital. And so they can be impatient. They're not in it for the long haul. So I see a lot of people post consistently for three months, but sometimes it's a one-year process until you build that trust with someone and then tell someone wants to invest with you.
2: Kind of moving on from that, I wanted to hear your my, thoughts. My on- longest, My longest cycle was four years with one person four years from start from first connection wow. who's somebody who I knew and over time over time they just kept they weren't ready they weren't ready they kept looking in they kept connecting connect look looking in and then eventually it was four years later when they pulled the trigger
0: do you have like a database of people that you contact like kind of as leads and then you'll follow up every every couple of months with them or a year or so yeah yeah
2: So we're going to get really deep into the weeds here. Are you guys okay if I over deliver today? (laughs) hundred percent. What a terrible terrible question. No, Russell, please hide all the information. (laughs) Hold it all back. You nurtured
1: a relationship for four years and I'm sitting here going, sometimes I can't even get back to people within like a day to like my (laughs) text messages. I'm wondering how the hell you did that.
2: (laughs) Well, you just never know. There's a lot of people looking in all the time, right? You just never know, even though they might not be engaging or responding. They just keep looking in and they just want to make sure that you've got the chops. Maybe they want to make sure that you've made the mistakes. Right. And most, most times it's just, they're not ready yet they're, So you just nurture them. Succinctly answer your question. I often look at the difference between an amateur and a professional in the realm of capital raising is somebody who has a database and somebody who does not have a database of names. Okay. Now, my database of people on my email list is an asset to me, no different than one, two, three, 45th Avenue in downtown my house. It is an asset to me, the connections that I have with the people. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't treat them like, you know, I don't abuse it. I provide good value. I provide more than weekly. I provide a podcast on Tuesday and a YouTube video on Thursday. I provide minimum, two free content pieces to my email list every single week. Okay. Now, and my goal is, and that's actually my goal that I have is to grow that database. Because if I know that I'm helping more people, the more people I help, the more problems I solve, the more problems I solve, the greater the opportunity that I can build wealth to share with others, to hire more people, to buy more properties, to do things like that. So my goal is that I have a metric on growing the database. That's as much of a metric that I measure as how many properties and how many offers I rate.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually very interesting. I'm thinking about it from a wholesaling perspective, from our wholesaling business, one of our metric is is to track the people on our buyers list, our email list, right? Because the bigger you grow that, the more likely someone's gonna convert over into an opportunity to do business with in the future, right? So it's no different from the JV business side of things, adding value, staying in touch and growing a larger email list. It just makes it also easier to stay in touch with people to have them like actually register on your email list consensually, because that means they're actually taking a look at your content, right? Like they actually engage with your content.
2: I often look at that. I'm in, I'm really in the people supporting business is really what I am is I support people with their goals and dreams and aspirations of what they want to accomplish. And I will provide solutions to that group of people that there'll be a way that I can participate in them winning. Not that it's Mm -hmm. I win, they lose, vice versa, or they win, I lose. It's that I participate in them winning. And people are very happy if they're winning and you are happy with somebody that's going to participate alongside them. Mm -hmm.
1: I'm curious, Russell, along this journey, you've done the raising capital for, it sounds like some of the smaller deals, like maybe like single family, duplex, triplex, fourplex. You're also raising capital for apartment buildings. Did you find there was a significant shift in the type of investor or the type of partner that was acting on these deals or is it kind of the people that you started off with earlier, naturally as they get more capital, they will naturally evolve into this bigger asset class. Like how did you kind of do that switch?
2: Literally it comes down to as that's just part of the qualification conversations that I have with people. So for example, Let me just walk you through a little bit of the flow here. So flow would be is I would put out a podcast, I put out a YouTube, I put out social media posts, I put out just lots of posts being in the business of real estate and that's lead gen, right? So you attract to somebody to raise their hand and say, okay, I'm interested. They maybe will come to your website after listening to something and then maybe fill out a form and then they answer a handful of questions and I give them a consultation about how I can help them. I'll give them 45 minutes of a consultation and then at the end of that i know pretty quickly if they want to do it themselves if they want to work you know if they want to align with somebody or if they want it done for them do it yourself done with you done for you is the three models i put do it yourself done with you done for you okay and then during that conversation i'll have a conversation with them about the capital available are they able to qualify for financing what kind of cash flow are they looking for what is their goals things like that and then from that initial conversation i have with people i can assess quite quickly like a doctor would do they need coaching help and support do they need an opportunity presented to them or do they need an opportunity done for them okay and then i will put them down that path to help them move forward
0: well interesting yeah yeah that's a very smart way to go about it i assume that you offer services in each one of those buckets as well
2: well i would be a bad service provider a bad helper of people if i did not
1: yeah yeah so, so
2: the answer yes obviously yes I do.
1: I think quite a bit of the horror stories that come out of JVs, like individuals said they were down and they pulled out last minute or I don't know, like just like the people that struggle with raising JVs and stuff like that, I'd assume it's therefore as a result of not properly qualifying the individual. Because I know some people will use individuals that are pulling funds from a line of credit who are going to be like very desperate for that money versus if you're raising funds from someone where maybe 100K is not the make all break all, right? Mm-hmm.
2: I'll give you a, a couple of real examples. I'll just give you one to keep it tight. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to jump over you there for a second, but I want to okay. deepen, deepen that point. It comes down to is, do you have the best interest in heart for your partner that you're raising the capital for? Okay. And I tell people right from the beginning, always, is that you potentially can do all this on your own. You can, right? But however, you're going to make lots of mistakes. I've done all this. I've, I can help shortcut the curve. I can get you into a better property. I can buy better. I get a better selection all kinds of different things. And we won't go down that road. But here's the example. So I was working with this person out of Toronto and we were going down the road. They were committed. They wanted to get involved into a joint venture. I found a really beautiful garage suite property, actually two of them, which is very, very difficult to find in my market. Garage suite is like coach homes out where you guys are. Very difficult. So I tapped my best sources, got an incredible opportunity, put the presentation together and presented it. We were walking through and I just there was a sense of just some resistance at the very end, like at the very end, just a resistance. And I just said, what's, what's, what's going on? Talk to me. And they go, you know, I think we can do this ourselves. And I said, I think you can too. So if I was, didn't have their best interest in heart, my conversation would have been, okay, well, good luck, you know, go see if you can find that. But what I did at that time was I said, would you like to close on these properties that I found myself? Would you like to close on these yourself? And they go, what do you mean? I go, I'll I'll give them to you. I'll turn them over to you. And so I turned them over to them. I made a little, like a a couple thousand bucks for my time and stuff like that. I didn't make as much as if I would have owned it for (laughs) for Mm -hmm. for 10 years. But my intention was to do what was right for them. And they said they could do it themselves. So I literally gift wrapped them up two properties. And from my understanding, I think those of those properties are probably up about 100 to $150,000 each. That is walking the talk, right?
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's all about doing the right thing. A lot of uh, people are short-minded, right? Whatever pays them today, they're going to take that route. And that's not ultimately how you build a business in the long term. I kind of want to get into raising capital in the current environment, given interest rate hikes, given the uncertainty, all of the chatter that's going on and negative sentiment. Have you found it to be more difficult to raise capital and if not necessarily, like at least how are the conversations going with investors? Are they asking more questions about market conditions? Could you walk us through that?
2: Well, yes and no. So well, how's that for a politician's answer? It, it is 100% more difficult, which is good. However, you also have some more time to fully vet people. There's not. There's not that puppy dog breath that we got to buy something today or else we're going to explode type of thing, or else we're just going to, a bomb will dry. Right. So. What?
1: You had that ready. (laughs) You had that ready. Wow. Uh, Wow, Or
2: I could just bring the fire if you're interested as well. Right. We got lots of fire on here too. So, Oh
0: man, we got to step our zoom game up.
2: (laughs) So we have some time to really develop that relationship. Okay. Now I believe that the traditional way I say traditional way is most people's expectations of real estate have got completely out of whack over the last three to five years, completely out of whack. When I have conversations with people and they tell me that they just bought a property six months ago in Windsor and holy moly, how come it's not up a hundred thousand dollars six months later? I go, well, what did you do? Nothing. I just bought it. Right. (laughs) Real estate should not go up hundreds of thousands of dollars in months. It should not you actually have to work at it. You actually have to find it. You have to actually own it. And you actually have to hold it with some tenants in it over a course of time. And in 5, 10, 15 years, you should be able to be cashing in hundreds of thousands of dollars a check. That's a normal. So the days of uh, easy, easy, easy money, in my opinion, are behind us. And now you actually have to work at it. So I believe that us professional real estate experts that have a system will actually be more of a commodity. Okay. I'll give you one example, just something I'm building out right now because of interest rates have gone up. Okay. Interest rates have risen. There's a group of people that maybe a year ago pre-qualified for a property at one and a half, two 2%. We're pre-buying a house this year with new interest rates, new qualification. The new stress test is like 6%. They're not able to qualify at 6% interest rates. So there's people walking away from contracts out there right now. So I am compiling some investment capital, some investors to come in and buy those properties for those people that were walking away. And we're going to do a rent to own for two to three years with them. Myself and my capital partners will be the banks these people that a year ago were qualified and maybe they just need two three more years to qualify again i have my realtor going out and finding properties i have uh you know sourcing out those people that just couldn't qualify today but they're close now think about it a year ago they were qualified right. they probably had access to down payment right they probably were able to qualify for a certain amount of payment but just now the interest rates have gone up so high so now what we do is we give them two or three years on a rent to own agreement to build out the down payment to be able to afford it. Right. And then we own the property. The investor owns the property. And I'm in the middle connecting the property to the tenant buyer, connecting the investor to the tenant buyer. And I have, I just pull the, the orchestra together and just make sure everybody's singing on the same song sheet.
1: That's a pretty creative way to go about the current market. That's just one
2: way. There's multiple ways of just doing That's just one current thing that I'm doing. There's other things I'm doing down in Texas with a business partner. We're doing furnished suites where he's getting like $6,200 rent on his furnished properties on $600,000 townhomes in Texas, or because the prices have come down so much, there's a partner of mine out in Ontario He's buying an apartment builder in Kitchener and the prices have calmed down so much and he's buying it so under rented that there's a huge margin there as well. So there's incredible opportunities that are surfacing.
1: A significant amount of time today talking about raising capital. One thing that we never really got into is, as you were saying right now, you've got businesses and properties in multiple areas. And early on the podcast, you already started off with saying you don't really invest in your backyard, but you're really taking this to scale. Like me and Austin say, we don't invest in our backyard and we're doing like Windsor, Sudbury, like, you know, like three, four hours where if we're really uncomfortable, we can drive out there and do it. But how do you go about A, formulating the relationships that allow you to do that wide variety of like scale? And do you raise partners that want to invest in certain geographies? Like how do you go bring that back into the raising capital side?
2: Brilliant question. So just for clarification, it seems like when I was talking about different areas, I'm just starting to branch out. I'm still 100% of my personal assets that I own. Our family assets are in Alberta and in Edmonton, and I'm building out that portfolio even bigger. Remember that conversation I said about helping people? When people come to me, I will 100% recommend they should invest in Alberta because of the fundamentals. We could go and do an entire podcast on why, and I've done dozens of them on that as well but some people just for whatever reason, don't like Alberta. Okay. Some people like the U S some people like Ontario and that's all good. Everybody likes their area for their own reasons. So I just started aligning with people that are what I would consider some of the best business operators in those areas that have a fan of their projects they put together. And then I just attached the capital to their projects because most people that are really good business operators are maybe not good at raising of the capital. And most people that are raising the capital are experts are terrible business operators, okay? So what I'm just doing is I find the operator that I am a fan of their projects. And then what I do is I just funnel people looking for, that have capital, looking for good opportunities with good, trustable, reliable operators. So if I had to go and be the operator in Texas and the operator in Kitchener, I would not be able to do it. I just can't because I would not put my investment capital at risk because I'm not an expert in those areas at the moment. So what I do is I find people I'm a fan of, fan of their business model, a fan of what they're doing, fan of their track record. And then that's where I place the capital like that.
0: That's like the who, not how business model, right? You're finding you're finding your who. <laughs>
2: I love that book. That was a game changer for me. Dan. yeah,
1: Yeah, an amazing book. Yeah, I think that's great. I think, Russell, the one thing that we also, and I keep saying this, but the one thing that we also never talked about in the podcast, I guess, is Alberta. Given that's kind of the area that you're definitely a market expert in. Alberta, I guess, is a market from my understanding. It was stagnant for a long time, right? And I think a lot of people saw opportunity in that, especially as oil and gas prices were increasing, right? And the rest of the world seemed to be getting into this big bubble territory. Alberta was kind of just increasing a little bit, it seemed like, right? So what's your current opinion on the current Alberta market? And then I also want to specifically touch on the oil and gas risk in Alberta and how we're at all time highs right now in oil and gas. Do you see additional exposure to the Alberta market?
2: All right. Well, there's a there's a long, long. conversation <laughs> of itself, but, but I'll try my best to cut to the chase here with a few things. So number one is Alberta's real estate market saw a extremely rapid rise. I'll just go back in time and then we'll talk about today an extremely rapid rise in the marketplace from like 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. Like, honest to goodness, it was the exact same thing I was seeing happening in Ontario. People were walking into networking events saying, geez, I'm making a $1,000 a day <laughs> for not doing anything and, uh, you know, and stuff like that. I was seeing that greed just really kick in. And I bought 40, 40 places at a peak of a marketplace in Alberta like 2007, 2008, four, zero, arguably speaking that property, I cannot sell it for what I paid for it 15 years ago. Right. Especially oh, wow. once I factor in commissions and fees yeah. and all that kind of stuff, it's actually less value than I saw there. So that's why I'm very, Mindful of people that were buying in BC and in Ontario the last couple of years, I'm on public record of telling a lot of my clients to start divesting of your dog properties in Ontario and British Columbia in February 2021 is when I started advising my clients to start doing that. Okay. Now, where it's going to go from here, I don't know. I can't answer that, but I'm just telling you my perspective of what I went through. I saw 15 years of up a little bit, down a little bit, but mostly in 15 years, it was flat, if not down. Over the past two years in Alberta, that tide has now shifted to the point that there's an old saying is sometimes the fix for low prices is low prices. Alberta is now the most affordable marketplace in the country. People are earning the most amount of money. The economic GDP, just put it this way, If it wasn't for our energy sector in this country, we guarantee would be in a recession right now. Guaranteed. The only thing keeping this country afloat and keeping it above on a growth trajectory right now is Canadian energy. And another conversation is I don't think we're even doing enough to completely optimize that opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's another podcast. Okay. So I'm seeing people moving in. I'm seeing economic activity. I'm seeing the people that are working there are earning more money. The people that are working there are keeping more money. They have the lowest taxes. Not only that, the government just announced a, I might get the number wrong, but I'm going to be pretty close. And I think it was almost a fourteen. Was it $14 billion budget surplus over the past year on their provincial budget. So much so that they just re-indexed all of the index of the incomes So most Albertans are now actually going to pay less in taxes across the board. So if you don't have PST and people earn more money, they have more money in their pocket. They're paying less out the door on housing costs. There has a greater opportunity for people to pay more in rent, greater opportunity for housing prices to go up. And there's a greater opportunity for that market to start its next run in prices. Now, That's my prediction. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm putting a lot of our family capital and putting my investment capital, my partner capital, we're going gung ho into a lot of projects in the Alberta marketplace right now.
1: Wow. That was a really good rundown. For sure we're gonna have to have you back someday in the future. And I'll give
2: you one more stat. If you're interested in one more stat, I'm going to give a framework. So for people going, I hate Alberta, a bunch of rednecks and I, I," okay, no problem. Here's the teaching point I want to give you. Here's the framework I want you to look at. So if I had a slide, Are you guys familiar with the Venn diagram, right? So three bubbles of a Venn diagram. Here's one bubble, here's another bubble and the other bubble down here, okay? So the three bubbles of the Venn diagram, you want economic activity, you want people, and you want market, real estate market. So the economic activity, is there GDP growth? Is there capital coming in? Are there projects, is there roads, is there construction? Is there, you know, is it attracting business? I don't know if you guys are getting the ads out in Ontario, but in British Columbia, the Alberta government is aggressively marketing people to move to Alberta aggressively. Okay. So that's economic activity. Then people, people, are they moving in? Are they moving out? And if they're moving in, are they working? Unemployment going down? Are people earning more income? Are they keeping more? Now, here's a quick stat in Alberta is based upon their projections of population. Alberta is forecasted to uh, double its population. Sorry, it's going to add about 1.4 million more people in Edmonton. That's almost going to double its population over the next 20 years to be the third most populous province in the country, surpassing British Columbia. So it'll be Ontario, Quebec, and then Alberta would be the third most populous. Now in Edmonton, million and a half people, they're forecasting another million people to move to the area, okay? Another million. So you have to have housing for people. And then the other thing the city has done within Edmonton, they're limiting the sprawl. They're not going outwards as much anymore. They've limited the footprint of the city and they're now densifying. For example, what does that mean? They're approving almost with rubber stamps of somebody if they go buy an inner city lot to do an infill on it. One of my clients just picked up an infill house for 300 and change. They're knocking down the house. They're building three side-by-side semis, townhomes with suites. Okay. So where there was one, he'll have six rental units. He bought it for three and change. He's putting 1.2 into it. He's into it for 1.5. He then has an appraisal on it for just under 1.8. Okay, so he builds a couple hundred thousand dollars equity from the beginning, and that's going to rent for just under $12,000 a month. And if he wanted to, which he chose not to, he could have put three rental units above the detached garage in the back. So he actually could have had a nine plex where there was one property before. So those kind of opportunities and those numbers, now think about that. He's into it for 1.5 million and he has six rental units.
1: The one thing I want to ask you before we move on to the two questions, um, Alberta, heavy exposure to oil and gas, oil and gas, all-time high right now. Do you see a significant risk? Obviously, there's a little bit of a risk, but do you see a significant risk? And and I'll give you an example. I have a a property in a gold mining town in Ontario, and gold prices are great. So I'm, I'm good. I'm not too concerned, right? But how do we know gold prices in 10, 15 years will be as high as they are right now, right? So oil and gas, obviously, a little bit different from gold, right? But how do you kind of address and mitigate that risk?
2: Well, a couple of things. And um, number one is oil prices is not at an all time high. I was in markets where it was pushing almost a couple hundred dollar range in some cases. So it is definitely elevated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in the world where there's going to be billions and billions of more people added over the next 20 years, you're going to need a safe and secure affordable energy per- mm-hmm. solution. Canadian energy, in my personal opinion, is one of the best opportunities that are out there. So that's number one is it it ain't going anywhere no time soon. We just look around our office, probably 80% of the things in each of our offices has probably had some kind of Canadian energy, oil and gas, hydrocarbon, whatever you want to call it, has been used for the manufacturing or it's 100% part of it. Okay, so that's number one. It ain't going nowhere soon. Number two is Alberta is very quickly, they actually used this slowdown over the last five years to completely pivot and they're starting to move towards new technology. And now I might get the stat wrong, but it's directionally correct. I think it's the third largest tech resource on renewable energy is happening at the University of Alberta, which is in Edmonton. So a lot of companies are very quickly investing capital in third in the world sorry
0: or is it third, third in, the, in the world yeah. oh wow
2: for resource centers now i could get the, if, if uh, you know i should have probably had that there but i i remember something of that it shocked me that the research that they're doing there now in canada uh, solar, wind, all those kind of things. Some of the largest projects that you're seeing, hydrocarbon, uh, hydrogen, all those things, some of the largest projects you're seeing are being done in Alberta right now with a lot of that. So it's pivoting, but in my personal opinion, it still has a very good need for things like, like this in the world right now um, we would be in a different position for inflation. If Canada provided what we had to the world, we have food, fuel, fertilizer, fresh water, friendly people, right? We have, and we have future tech. We have what the world wants. And now I'm going to get political for one second. If we just had leadership in this country that would step up and say, the world, we have goods and services that you need. Let's align together and let's help you with what you need. And I'm going to end that political comment there. You can read in whatever you want.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's very true. I, I, I listen to the news and I, I read up on what shortages are and, and where and what's causing what. And I basically wonder the same thing. Sometimes I'm like, don't we have that? And like, why are we not like that much more profitable? We have some of the hours? world's
2: leading yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. things that people want. Like, think about it from a business perspective. You have what the customers want, but you actually don't want to sell it to them.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. For sure. So before I ask you that, actually, one more question. Um, You were originally from Saskatchewan. Is there any, like, what are your thoughts on the Saskatchewan market? Do you follow that? Do you think there's a lot of potential in that market as well? Or what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, lots of opportunity. Saskatchewan and Alberta are very similar. Um, Saskatoon and Edmonton are almost like Twin Cities in economics and stuff like that. Calgary is a little bit of an anomaly than the rest, but I think there's some really good opportunities in Saskatchewan. I I have quite a few clients out there. There's actually some really cool opportunities in the commercial space as well out there too. Um, buying a commercial property, putting some businesses into it and things like that. So there are really good opportunities in my opinion. Well, awesome. I'll give you an example. Houses in small towns, Saskatchewan. Now I'm not advocating small towns at the moment. In some markets in Saskatchewan, the houses are selling for less than replacement value. Right. So here's a real life example. My parents just sold their house. In a small town, but growing a couple thousand people population. They just sold on an 8,000 square foot lot, a 3,000 square foot, two story, beautiful home. They just sold it for $180,000. And I was talking to my builder contacts and they say, yeah, probably it cost $90,000 in lumber just to build that. <laughs> right like just imagine a house like that. I know where I live on that large of a lot and that size of a house, I, that property is almost $2 million where I live mm-hmm. Right. Very mm-hmm.
1: interesting. I think this is a great episode. At this point in the podcast, we'd like to ask, I guess, two questions. The first is where do you see yourself five years from now with regards to your business, real estate, what are the overarching goals here?
2: Well, I, I actually have a, so remember, so I'm going to tie this full circle to my original story. Remember the year 2000, turn 30. I had a crisis of life at that time, saw Oprah, and I had, I set a new goal. I just actually had one of those birthdays and it was at 2020. I had my 50th birthday and I had one of those moments, another birthday that ended with zero. And I was looking at myself in the mirror and I had not accomplished enough in my personal opinion. So I set a new goal at that time. And the goal I set at that time was to help one million, one million 1 million real estate investors with the tools and resources to help you buy one more property. Now, what does one more property mean to each of us? One more property is a totally different connotation for each person, but one more property, if you buy the right property in the right area can be life changing. So my goal is to help inspire a million people with the tools and resources to buy one more property. So where I'm going to be in five years, hopefully I'm going to be a 20% or 25% of that way to that goal, right? I guess i would be 30% of that goal, right? So I'm uh I have no idea how I'm going to do it. All I just know when I set that goal, it scared the crap out of me. And, but at the same time, it scared the crap out of me. And the hairs on the back of my neck also stood up. I knew that I was onto something and I'm going to do whatever I can to try to get there.
1: The nuance is, you said, 1 million and in five years, 30%. It's interesting to see that you're kind of projecting exponential growth, right? Like some people would go a hundred K a year. Right. And your approach is much more logical as well to assume that. Well,
2: well. my approach is actually, I'm going to do set the base myself and then I'm going to inspire other leaders Uh, to get involved Mm -hmm. in the mission themselves so that there'll be an army of us all on the same mission together, go on the same path.
1: Awesome. All right. Perfect. The second question is for a newer investor in today's market, what's the main risk? What do you see them doing wrong? Any, Any kind of feedback that you give from your conversations with newer investors?
2: Yeah. No. Okay. Now I could go many different directions here, but I'm going to give you some advice that I wish I had when I got started. Okay. Here's the advice I wish that I had when I got started. The three pillars of real estate are what you buy, where you buy and who you rent to. Okay. Those are the three most important things in real estate. What you buy, where you buy and who you rent to. The most important of those three in my personal opinion is who you rent to. Okay. I would have completely changed a lot of uh, my purchase decisions if I would have taken into consideration the tenant profile at the beginning. Most people, if you're buying buy and hold rental properties, have no idea their tenant profile, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to match wrong tenant profile with wrong property in wrong area. okay? And if you take the time to articulate and design your tenant profile first, take that tenant profile, match it up in the right area where they want to live in and match them up with the right house. You'll have a much better experience. And then the corollary I would share with people is don't be afraid of buying new construction and buying something new. Quality over quantity will win the day. And this is coming from somebody who's transacted many hundreds of properties. And uh, I wish I would have bought more quality properties as opposed to quantity when I first got started
0: yeah yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I think Mayu and I have uh, have learned that lesson too with these old houses. There's problems that come up all the time, and it it erodes the cash flow that we that we saved uh, in our account. But um, this was a fantastic episode. Russell definitely learned a lot. Thank you for all you do for the real estate community. You were actually one of the first speakers, if not the first speaker, I ever saw talk about joint ventureships. It was in, I think it was Smart, the the event that Gary Hibbert hosts, what is Smart Homes or Smart? I think that's it, yeah. And it definitely took a lot away from that first presentation and that helped me get started in my path of raising capital too. Uh, If people wanna connect with you, learn more from you, how could they do so?
2: Well, the best way, the easiest way, if you don't mind, I'm gonna put something on the screen here. Hopefully I hit the right button. So the simplest way that I would highly encourage is if you can spell my name correctly, you can find everything about me. all my channels, my Facebook, my Instagram, my YouTubes, everything revolved around my name, even to the point of where my podcast is my name as well. So I don't know if that's the right method to go, but I'll tell you, if you can spell my name, you can find me. <laughs> right? Branding so 101. That'd be the simplest one. Long, However, a terrible it. business strategy is I can't sell it at the end. Like, <laughs> how do you, you know, that's, I think that's called slavery or something, right? So how do you sell your, your own name to somebody else? But uh, it, it's a way of uh, a very unique propositioning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So uh, that's Russell Westcott and all of the links will be down below in the show notes. until next time, everyone invest smarter and live better. Take care all.